Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. We are continuing in the great romance, and we're nearing the end of our study in the feasts as we've been looking at really tracing Jesus throughout the scriptures. It's been such a journey. I think we're up to like week 36. So it's almost been a full year, uh, you know, getting there, just going through the Bible and looking at how God has revealed his son and his son's passionate pursuit of his people called the Bride of Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking at the feast because the feasts give us a snapshot into the not just what Jesus did when he was here, but also the end time events, what's coming in the future and how that relates to our hope and our faith and why we gather every week. You know, we're, we're here not just to be good people and to do religious things. We're here because we have a hope in Jesus Christ that one day the trumpet's going to sound, the sky's going to be rolled back like a scroll. Jesus is going to return and he's going to return an awesome victory. And we'll get to be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. And, uh, and so this gives us insight into what that's going to look like and, and how that's going to happen. And we've been looking through the, the Old and New Testaments. And uh, so far, as we've looked at these feasts, we started off in the spring feasts. There were four feasts in the spring that represent new life and surrounding the harvest. We had the Feast of Passover, Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks or first fruits, and then also the Feast of Pentecost. And, um, and this was the initiation of the kingdom of God on the earth, what Jesus accomplished while he was here. Then we begin to turn our sights on the fall feast. And in the fall, we recognize everything begins to kind of die off and go towards an ending rather than a beginning. And this is representative of the last days, what's going to culminate in Jesus' second coming. And we begin to see how God is calling his people into his family, the nations of the world, back to him. So it's been quite an exciting time. So we find ourselves now in that place between what we looked at, uh, the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets, as we're nearing the last days, the time of the Great Tribulation. And we're going to look at the next feast after the Feast of Trumpets today, one of the most significant feasts in the time of the history of the nation of Israel. And, and so we're, we're in this time right now, and it's important to, to know what is going on right now in heaven. Like, what is God doing? We, we hear a lot of people say, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, why has he waited 2,000 years to return? Like, why has it taken so long for him to come back? And Peter even addressed this question in his letter. He said, some people say, you know, everything's happened the same way since the beginning of time. You know, what, you actually think Jesus is going to come back? And Peter said, God's not being slow about his promise, but he's waiting that all men who will will turn to repentance. He wants the whole world to be saved. So he's giving us time. Not only is he giving us time, but there was a promise to Jesus by the Father in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. And it says this, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem and you will rule over 
your enemies. So not only is there a promise to us that God's going to wait to give as many people as an opportunity to be saved as, as there can be, as we'll turn to him. That's his will, that none should perish, but all should go to heaven, all should be saved. But he also promised Jesus. He said, Jesus, because of what you've done, you've sacrificed yourself, you stay up here with me, and there'll be a day I will put an end to all of your enemies. I will lay waste to every enemy that opposes you, and then I will hand the kingdom over to you. And this is what happens at the second coming. The tribulation is God's wrath, his judgment being poured out on the earth as he is laying waste to every enemy of Christ, and then Christ comes back to reclaim his kingdom. Lord God, we just thank you as we are studying this final, this feast, Lord, and, and this program of salvation, this redemption. God, I pray just as you wrote in Revelation that blessed is he who keeps the word of this prophecy, Lord, that you would bless us today. You would encourage our faith, and God, that we would, we would just be filled with joy and humble expectation of that day when you come, that we would echo in our souls the same words that John wrote at the end of the book of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, we put our faith and trust and hope in you today. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So the feast we're looking at today was one of the most significant feasts that they observed, one of the three high holy feasts that Israel observed. This week, according to an article on CNN.com, an event that's kind of been used to rip our nation apart, the sentencing of Officer Derek Chauvin is going to be taking place this Friday. He was the officer accused of killing George Floyd and was sentenced, actually, found guilty on multiple charges. He was found guilty of charges of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter for his role in Floyd's death. The article states that prosecutors for the state of Minnesota have requested a 30-year prison sentence saying it would properly account for the profound impact on the defendant's conduct on the victim, the victim's family, and the community. Now, whether or not you agree with that decision or that sentencing is not the case and why I bring this up today. What I'm wanting to illustrate for you before we get into this feast is that inherent in every individual, something that every one of us have deep within inside of us, is this understanding that when a crime is committed, justice must be served. When you are wronged, you don't just sweep it under the rug and be like, eh, it doesn't matter. You cry out for justice. You want something to be done. If you look at every movie we watch that has an action hero in it, there's a bad guy doing bad things, and what does the good guy do? He comes to bring justice. There's something in us that says justice must be served when crimes are committed. And what I find interesting is in this article, the writer says this crime, this offender, that this 30-year this sentence that they're wanting to put on this man, it says it will properly account for the crimes in order for justice to be given. It will properly account. So what is that saying? That means there's something in us that understands that the punishment must fit the crime. That when, when something is done, there's something that must be done equal to that in order for justice to be served. From cover to cover throughout the scripture, 
the Bible profoundly and unequivocally teaches us that all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. What is that? That is absolute perfection and holiness. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short. So before God, who is judge, in the courtroom of heaven, each of us stand guilty as criminals. Every one of us. Because we've all sinned. We've all broken his commands. We have all rebelled against God. And one day, the Bible tells us, there will be a day of judgment. And we will stand before the Lord. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as each person is destined to die once, after that comes what? Comes judgment. If not in this life, Jesus returning first, we will stand before God one day, and we will all face judgment. Not a person on the planet escapes the judgment of God. And all of us have sinned. There is a reckoning coming for all who have sinned. And that day of reckoning, the Bible tells us, is called the day of the Lord. The day of judgment. And this day is represented by the Feast of Atonement. Because everyone must atone for their sins. There must be an atonement. I know some people, they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, if God was a loving God... Why, why would he send people to hell? I mean, that he must not be very loving if he would send people to hell for all eternity. And my question is, is if you had a child and somebody kidnapped and murdered your child, would you not want justice for your child? Of course. You wouldn't even blink an eye. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And what did his only son do? He died for the sins of the world. He died because sin must be atoned for. All of us have broken his commands. All of us are the reason why Jesus had to die. We're responsible. And so there is a day where God is going to have a day of reckoning, a day of justice, where sin and the sins of the world will properly be dealt with. Numbers 29.7, talking about the day of atonement. This is why God said to the nation of Israel, you must observe this feast year to year. It says, 10 days later, that's after the Feast of Trumpets, on the 10th day of the same month, you must call another holy assembly. And on that day, the Day of Atonement, the people must go without food and must do no ordinary work. This would be a day of fasting and prayer, knowing that judgment is coming. The atonement is coming. This was the big one. This feast was the big feast. This is the, the one where... This one time a year was the only time Aaron, the high priest, and the high priest after him were given permission by God not just to enter the tabernacle as they normally would each day, but to go behind the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, this place that was the throne of God on earth where his presence filled the tabernacle and later in history the temple. He was allowed to go through that veil, that curtain, on the other side to stand before God in order to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And this high priest was warned, never enter the most holy place whenever you want. You can't go there whenever you want. If you were to trip and fall and accidentally cross the barrier, 
too late, you're dead. They would die. Because it was such a, a thing, it was such a holy thing to enter the presence of God that, that if, since God's presence was there, his holiness was so great, without the proper permission or purification, Aaron, a sinner, would perish before him. The high priest would perish. A sacrifice, atonement had to be made. Holiness, God's holiness cannot occupy the same space as unholiness. They can't, it's like oil and water. They cannot occupy the same space. So when unholiness comes into the presence of God, it's dealt with in justice. If you think about the, the, our enemy, the, the devil, as he's before the throne, when pride began to well up in his heart, he was cast out from the presence of God. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, where God lived, dwelled with man in the garden, and they sinned, they were cast out of the garden because unholiness has no fellowship with holiness. And not only is there a spiritual reality with holiness and the severity of holiness, there's also a physical reality. The prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 44, he has a vision of the last days in this end times temple. And God instructs the priests who are ministering in the temple before the Lord, before his presence, that before they could leave his presence and go around the common people again, they had to take off their clothing. Ezekiel 44 verse 19 it says, when they return to the outer courtyard where the people are, they must take off their clothes they wear while ministering to me. They must leave them in sacred rooms and put on other clothes so they do not what? So they don't endanger anyone by transmitting holiness to them through their clothing. There is a reality when God's presence is manifest in our physical reality, there is a physical danger for unholiness to approach holiness. There's a physical component. And if you read uh, the Old Testament, Moses would regularly go before God and speak to him face to face. And when he would leave the tabernacle, his face would be shining like the sun because there is some mystery that when we are in the presence of God, we absorb his holiness. And without the covering and purification, it is deadly. It would destroy us. Because unholiness and holiness cannot occupy the same space. During the Day of Atonement, they are required to give many sacrifices, but one in particular had to be offered by the high priest. He had to take the blood of this sacrifice into that most holy place to not just purify the people, but also to purify the place where God dwelled, the very tabernacle itself. Why did the tabernacle have to be purified? It's because it was made by corruptible things, by corruptible people, and corruptible hands. So not only did the people have to be purified, but the place where God met with the people had to be purified. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, it says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. This is how he purified himself. And then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering, a sacrifice. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. And it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Verse 14, it says, And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat in the east side, 
In the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil to this most holy place, to do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the what? Because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So think about this. Not only does God's holiness has a physical reality to it that is intense and severe and dangerous for unholiness. But the very tabernacle where God would dwell when the fire came down on the tabernacle, it also was tainted by the transgressions of the people around it. Not only is holiness contagious, but so is sin and corruption. This is why he said over and over again in, in, in the, the law, don't do these things because it will pollute the land. It'll corrupt. There's a corruptive nature. What does that tell you about why we should guard our hearts from things that draw us away from God? Guard our eyes from what we are looking at. Guard our ears from what we're listening to. Guard our minds for what we're thinking because sin also has an effect, a corruptive effect. So not only did the people, but also the dwelling place of God have to be atoned for. This atonement sacrifice was used for the purification to annul the sins that happened throughout the previous year. And to set up the next year for blessing and continued fellowship with God, that his presence could continually remain and reside in Israel in the tabernacle, this little tiny area of land in the camp. This is where God dwelled, and this would purify it so God could remain with them to bring back just a little slice of the Garden of Eden amongst the people. Now, this passage about the goats has troubled scholars for years, and I think it's interesting to look at because it's, if you think about how awkward it is, God said, I, there's one God, you should worship me alone, right? One of the Ten Commandments, worship me and me alone. No gods before me. Yet the sacrifice, it says there's one goat for the Lord and one goat for Azazel. And that's a proper name. And uh, scholars have been troubled with this name because it's not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. You can't find it. And so what they did was they took the, they pulled the name apart, they used the prefix and the suffix, and they, they looked at how the part of it means to be sent away, and the other part means goat, and so that's where the term scapegoat came from. So you might, you might have heard that term, somebody's a scapegoat, it comes from the scapegoat sacrifice. And that word was invented to explain this name that they have no idea what it actually meant. And so it, it's rather interesting. However, this name is not a, a term. It's actually a proper name. And it also pops up in second temple literature, as in the books of Enoch and elsewhere. And it refers to the angel that led the angels in rebellion in Genesis chapter 6 when they came down to corrupt mankind. And the resulting effect was the Nephilim and the giants. So there's this connection and understanding that Azazel is in reference to a demonic power of some form, some type. According to Dr. Michael Heiser in his book, The Unseen Realm, he says Azazel was a proper name for an entity in opposition to Yahweh. Though the Old Testament doesn't state Azazel was a demon specifically, scholars have connected the name to Mot, the god of death, 
as well as the location the goat is sent into the wilderness is to be connected to the place where the focus of chaos or forces of chaos rule. Why? Because nothing lives in the desert, but death and destruction are found there. So the wilderness is where the forces that are in opposition, opposition to Yahweh dwell. So think about what God is doing. He's saying, one goat's for me. It's going to purify this land in the wilderness, this place in the wilderness where I am. The other one's going out into the wilderness where the Lord of death dwells. And Jesus connects the wilderness to the place where the forces of chaos rule, where they are found in Matthew 12, 43 through 44, in references to an unclean spirit. He says, when an unclean spirit's gone out of a person, it passes through where? Through waterless places, through the desert, through the wilderness. It seeks rest, but it doesn't find any. And then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. So when a person is oppressed and that spirit's cast out, the spirit doesn't just disappear. It goes off into the desert, out into the wilderness. And if you keep reading, it says that that spirit will find seven other spirits worse than them. Where did that spirit find those spirits? In the wilderness, in the dry places. And it gathers them together to come back to oppress the person even worse. The wilderness is a place of chaos, of destruction, Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's where you find death and everything associated with it. It's where you find suffering. Remember Jesus, when he was baptized, the Spirit of God immediately took him where? Into the wilderness. And what happened in the wilderness? He was tempted by the devil. This is a place of spiritual battle, of spiritual strongholds. It's widely understood as the domain of the powers of darkness. Heiser also says in his his book that some of the Israelites who practiced idolatry, who rebelled against God, they would sacrifice goats in the wilderness, which they were expressly forbidden to do in Leviticus 17.7. And, and it's interesting that Leviticus 17 says, don't sacrifice in the wilderness because you're sacrificing to goat demons. There's a connection. And at the base of Mount Hermon, the mountain where these angels in Genesis 6 fell when they rebelled, at the base of that mountain is an altar to the god Pan, which is a half-man, half-goat demonic figure. So there's this understanding that this goat is connected to this, this understanding of spiritual darkness in the wilderness. And God is somehow using this sacrifice to not only bring atonement, but bring purity. God's wrath is pent against sin. And in the atonement sacrifice, the scapegoat sacrifice, it was temporarily satisfied by the blood of the sacrifice. His people were made holy by the goat or the offering for the Lord being sacrificed in their place. But then what they would do is they would lay the hands, their, the priests would lay their hands on the goat for Azazel. They would confer all the sins of the people on this goat. And when they sent the goat out into the wilderness, it was sim symbolizing all the sins of the people, all the corruption for the year, leaving the camp and going out into the wilderness. The removal of sin. So Azazel didn't receive an offering because it wasn't sacrificed. What Azazel received was more sin added to his account for future judgment. Every time the atoning sacrifice was given, the people of God were cleansed, but Azazel got more sin. This feast was so important to the people of God because th they also believed 
that if they didn't repent during that 10-day period between trumpets and atonement, if they didn't repent and come into obedience with God, they would fall under God's judgment the following year. In Leviticus 23, 26-31, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Be careful to celebrate the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of the same month, nine days after the Festival of Trumpets. You must observe it as an official day for Holy Assembly, a day to deny yourselves and present special gifts to the Lord. Do no work during the entire day because it is the Day of Atonement when offerings of purification are made for you, making you right with the Lord your God. All who do not deny themselves that day will be cut off from God's people, killed. And I will destroy anyone among you who does any work on that day. You must not do any work at all. This is a permanent law for you, and it must be observed from generation to generation wherever you live. So in connection to the atonement, not only were these sacrifices re required, but on the day of atonement, they couldn't work and they couldn't eat. They had to become completely dependent on God on that moment. They were commanded to fast. Why? Because they were being purified. If they forsook the law of God, if they rebelled against God, they would be destroyed the following year. Why? Because their sins would not have been atoned for. The sacrifice would not have covered their sin, making them pure. They had to lean in, to draw close, to trust in the Lord for their sins to be atoned. And that belief still continues today. There are many Jewish people who believe that if they don't enter a time of repentance on atonement, they don't get their lives right before the Lord, they'll be cursed the following year. Rather than God's mercy, they'll fall under God's judgment. And so as we understand the purpose of atonement and what the, the understanding was from the Old Testament, we can see how this connects to the return of Christ in the fall feast. If we look at the book of Revelation, chapter 11, 17 through 18. In Revelation chapter 11, it says, And we give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, and the prophets and saints, and for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's such a great verse. There's a day coming when the destroyers of the earth are going to be destroyed. Amen? Are you excited for that? Well, you don't have to struggle with this nonsense anymore. And what I also love here is it says, You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. In Revelation chapter 1, as Jesus is introducing himself, he introduces himself as the one who was, who is, and is to come. But here, he's just the one who was and who is. Why? He's not coming. He's done come already. He's here. And here's what's happening in the earth as he's reigning. Again, we looked at the last time that the fullness of Gentiles had to come in for God to begin to return his focus and on the redemption of Israel. The powers of the unseen world knew they have little time, which is why they ratcheted up persecution and conflict in the last days. They gathered the nations around Israel to try to once and for all overthrow Yahweh because they believed that if they control the promised land, they control sacred space, the place where God dwells, they get to control God. They get to control the universe or be God. Because if they can reign where God reigns, then they can be God or raise their throne above even the Lord's. So in the last days, we see that they gather the nations around Israel for one final conflict. This battle we call the Battle of Armageddon. And in Zechariah chapter 14, 
3 through 5, it depicts what transpires when Jesus finally returns to earth to bring the atonement to the earth. In verse 3, it says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Meditate on that for just a minute. When we think of Jesus, we often think of the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that we see in all the little kids' storybook Bibles, you know, the meek and lowly Jesus, or the Talladega Nights baby Jesus, you know, that never never got older. We have this conception of Jesus where he's, he's kind of weak, he's kind of frail, he's humble. But Jesus didn't begin to exist when he was born from the Virgin Mary. Before time, the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before his physical birth, was known in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And if you do a search, a, a word search, for the angel of the Lord in Scripture, you'll see many times where the angel has a drawn sword. And there's one particular event where the angel of the Lord goes out into the camp of the Assyrians and slays 150,000 of them in a single night. The mighty God is the God of victory. Jesus is not meek and lonely. He is the Lamb. He's also the lion. And when he comes, he's not coming to be the lamb. He's coming as the one who fights on the day of battle. This is a great victory. This is when he comes down on the white horse with the robe dipped in blood. Sword proceeding from his mouth. Tattoo on his thigh. As a side note, if you think tattoos are wrong, then Jesus has sinned because he's got a tattoo on his thigh. I don't know what it says, but I bet you it's awesome. Even so much, he's like, I'm going to give you some thigh on this one. You know. This is, this is a moment. Like, put yourself in that place. You've just struggled through the tribulation, persecution. You're desperate. The world is in chaos. And all of a sudden, the trumpet sounds. And Jesus appears in the sky with his sword drawn for battle and all the angels of glory at his side. We're talking about worship and celebration about to ensue. Verse 4, it says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward, the other half southward. Think about this. Not only does he come and destroy these armies with the word of his mouth, but when he lands onto the Mount of Olives and he touches the Mount of Olives, such an immense release of power that this mountain range separates into a massive landslide and the mountain becomes a valley for his army. We're talking about uh, an amazing sight. And you, O Israel, shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come with all the holy ones with him. This is every angel of heaven, every saint of glory. It was the dead is raptured up, the, the resurrected. We who are alive and remain, meet Christ in the air, were changed in the twinkling of an eye, and all the holy ones of heaven. The bride of Christ, the ancient of days, come down in glorious victory. There's not even a battle because Jesus takes care of his enemies with a word. 
Yes. And we leave that mountain scene and we march triumphantly with Christ into Jerusalem, the holy city. Now we're going to get more into this feast next week as it relates to the bridegroom and the bride, which is such a beautiful picture in the consummation of the eternal marriage. But this is a moment where sin is atoned. Every person that is in rebellion against God, every person in unrighteousness, in unbelief, everyone who has chosen the side of the enemy over the Lord, every demonic power over every face of the planet, the devil and his demons, in one moment, are judged. They're judged. They receive justice. And their crimes are atoned for with their own blood. Now I want to show you a mystery around this atonement. And my heart is that it helps you change the way you see yourself. Because this, this stuff matters. To understand this, it matters to our faith. It matters to our identity, who we are in Christ. And I want to help build your confidence because so many of us walk through this life trying to be a good Christian, trying to be a good person, but we feel so defeated and we feel so unworthy and we feel so not good enough that it acts as a hindrance, as a block for us to grow in our relationship with Christ and just be free to be who he's created and called us to be. And I want you to experience more of the abundant life in the here and now that Jesus came to give you. And maybe for the first time today, you might be delivered of a spirit of guilt and shame and encounter his joy for the first time as you see what Jesus has done for you. If you remember throughout the study, we saw how Jesus fulfills the role of the high priest. He's become our high priest. And again, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go into the most holy place and offer the sacrifice. Jesus has become our eternal high priest who right now in heaven, beside the throne, is interceding for us. Jesus is praying for you. Like, you know when you're struggling and you're like, I got to call somebody, I need some prayer. Like, I need somebody praying for me. This is, this is rough. Jesus never stops praying for you. He started praying for you in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 17, praying before his death, and he continues to pray for you every day. Never ceases to pray for you. But he is our high priest. In Hebrews chapter 9, 11 and 12, it says, Christ has now become our high priest over all the good things that have come. He's entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of the created world. There's a tabernacle in heaven that cannot be corrupted because man didn't make it. It is forever in the presence of God. It is forever pure, forever holy, because that is where God lives. That's where he resides. That's where he made. When Jesus rose again, when he went to heaven, this is where he went. It says, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. I mean, just think about, think about this. Man, us, who was physical, we were cut off from God, who is spiritual. So God, who is spiritual, 
came down to become a man who was physical so he who was now physical could enter that which was spiritual and restore our fellowship with him forever and ever. This is such a big deal. But according to Hebrews chapter 9, the verse we just read, where did Jesus offer his blood as the high priest? He was in the throne, in the tabernacle, in heaven. He offered his blood in the eternal temple in heaven on the mercy seat of God's covenant, the ark of God's covenant that's before his throne in glory. But here's a question. When Jesus died, which feast was he fulfilling? It wasn't atonement. It was Passover. If you remember, he actually died at the feast of Passover. He's our Passover lamb. So in the timeline of events, Jesus didn't die at atonement. He died at Passover, and we know when he died, he descended into the abyss. He overthrew the powers of darkness. He arose with the keys of death and the grave in all power and authority. This was his first great victory. When he ascended into heaven, it's then that he entered into this dwelling place, the very throne room of God, and offered his own blood in the most holy place. There is a mystery tied to the atonement, to the death and resurrection of Jesus. His death was a fulfillment of Passover, but simultaneously was also fulfilling the atonement at the present time because he couldn't offer his own blood without first dying. Does that make sense? In order to offer his blood, he had to die. So he came at Passover to give his life. Now, just as the priests conferred the sins of the people on the scapegoat and sent the scapegoat out into the wilderness, when Jesus was on trial before the high priest and they began to beat him, they were beating him for blasphemy. The priests were laying hands on the Messiah, conferring sin that did not belong to him because he never lied. He told the truth. He said, I'm the Messiah, and they accused him of lying. So they laid their sins upon him at his trial. Then he was unjustly condemned. If you remember the scene before his crucifixion, there's Pilate. Jesus is there, had beaten half to death, worse than any other human being, marred for every sin. By his stripes we are healed, we're told. Pilate says, it's my custom that I release a prisoner to you during this festival. And so he calls up a man named Barabbas. And they said, who do you want me to release? Your Messiah or Barabbas? And what do the priests say? Give us Barabbas. So the Passover lamb remains the sacrifice to the Lord, and the scapegoat gets to go free. So while the Passover is being done, atonement simultaneously is being offered. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins, so we could be made right with God through Christ Jesus. This is such an amazing understanding when you look at what he's accomplishing simultaneously. The, land, the goat goes to the wilderness. The sacrifice of the Lord remains to be sacrificed. But the mystery of the atonement, because the atonement sacrifice was offered by Aaron, if you remember, it only covered them 
for the sins that had been committed the previous year. Which is why the next year, on the Day of Atonement, they had to go through the process all over again. They had to do the scapegoat sacrifice, offer all the purification. It went through year after year after year. They had to continually offer this sacrifice to remain, not only maintain their relationship with God, but also their proximity to God, that the people would be purified enough to dwell in God's presence. My question is, is don't we feel like that in our Christian life when we mess up? I do. Everything's going great, and then all of a sudden, I step out of character. I have a bad attitude. I do something wrong. I, I spout off at the mouth. I say something I shouldn't have said. And all of a sudden, this weight of guilt comes upon me. And I feel terrible. I shouldn't have done that. Christians don't do that. They don't act like that. And what happens with our connection to God? We start to feel distant from God. Like we... Like, we owe God something now. We've messed up now. We owe God, and now we need to atone from what we've done. And until we atone from it, like, and we've been made right, we don't even feel like we can approach God in prayer. Like, it becomes hard to even pray. Like, God, what do I say to you? I'm so ashamed. I, I, can't, I, I can't even find the words to approach to you because I don't feel like, like I'm acceptable enough to even come into your presence. This is why many of us, we struggle with a haunted past. You, you look back at all the things you've done in your life, and you're like, yeah, I get God loves me. The Bible says that, but I don't really think God likes me. Because how could God like someone who's lived like this? How, how could God accept that? But beloved, the word says he enjoys our company. He's delighted to be near us and that we're not a constant disappointment. But when you look at Israel and you're like, look at the sacrifice year after year after year. How, how could that even be possible? How could God still love me and like me and rejoice over me after the things that I've done? How I continue to make the same mistakes over and again. I just keep letting God down. How could I not be a constant disappointment to the Lord? You know, I have felt that way many times. And I really think religion does that to you. It makes you feel like if you're not at a certain level, you're not worthy. You're not acceptable. And beloved, Jesus came to set us free from religion. To deliver us with the truth. He says, remain in the truth and you'll be set free. Now I want to show you the truth. I want to show you the truth of why atonement matters. Hebrews 9.12, again, it says, with his own blood. Somebody say his own blood. His blood. Not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place, and what did he do? Once for all time, secured our redemption forever. One time, they had to offer the sacrifices again and again and again. One time did Jesus offer the sacrifice. He offered himself. And so the question you have to ask is, if he offered himself at the Passover, after his resurrection, one time, how could he fulfill the atonement 
which happens later at the end of days. How could his sacrifice, like, yeah, I understand it covering everyone who's come before because all the sin that had happened and his sacrifice, but how could it cover the future? Like, we, we have a hard time. We've got Christians today that believe if you sin after you've been saved, you'll lose your salvation. That, that your relationship with God's disconnected. And that you've got to get saved again. You've got to go through the process again to get reconnected to Christ. So how is it that he's able to, once for all time, offer his blood to secure our redemption forever if he did it at the Passover? And there have been billions of people who have come after who have sinned a great deal. How could it be enough? We continue to sin. We continue to fall short. This is why they offered year after year to purify the people and the tabernacle. Beloved, rather than God dwelling in a tent today, for all who believe, where does he reside? He resides in your heart. The same God who dwelt in the tabernacle dwells in you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. So how is it that holiness can occupy the same space as unholiness. How is it? Why don't we just drop dead the moment we sin if the same presence and holiness of God dwells in us that dwelled in the tabernacle? If God's holiness is too intense for a sinner to remain alive in his presence, why aren't we just dead whenever we fall out of alignment with God again? How is it that even though we still make mistakes today, we still fall short today, we're not in danger of losing our salvation or our relationship with God as Israel did when they sinned in the desert? Why, why is that? Well, Hebrews tells us in 9.25-26, through 26, he says, and he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the pr- high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to have died again and again ever since the world began. Jesus would have had to come at Eden and died every year. That's not what happened. So it only makes sense that if we sinned after we're saved, that we would need another sacrifice to cover our future sins, looking at the biblical model. That Jesus would need to die again and again, but it's not the case. He only needed to die once. And why is that? Look at what Hebrews says in the rest of the verse. Verse 26. He says, but now, once for all time, he has what? Appeared at the end of the age. That means the end of time, the end of the ages to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. When he died and he rose again in victory, Jesus went outside of time because God is timeless. Went outside of time to the end so that he could offer his own blood on the day of atonement to cover every sin because at that moment, When sin is judged, all sin will all be past tense. It's past tense. When he offered his blood 
The reason why it was once for all time is because when he offered it, there will be no more sin thereafter. It's all past tense. If you look at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. All wickedness, the enemy, everything is dealt with. It's all done in the last day. The moment the books are opened, those who belong to the Lamb of God, when we stand before God, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, on the day of judgment and you stand before God, it's not to be judged for your sin, it's to be rewarded for your righteous deeds. There is no negative judgment coming for you if you're in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we live in a new reality. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Have you, have you ever m- mistakenly deleted something on your cell phone you did not mean to delete? Or on the computer? And all of a sudden, what happens? Panic mode. You're like, oh no, how do I get this back? You go into the trash can. Did I, I delete it forever? You, get like, you start looking at how to crack your, your uh, computer on YouTube or whatever to walk you through how to recover deleted files. I mean, it's like, it's like game on. And luckily, these companies have gotten right with Jesus and provided us easier ways to do that now. I think you can go in and to recovery files and, and do that. But in the same way, if you're in Christ, you have a relationship with God, the oldest past, all things have become new. What's that mean? It means your record of sin was permanently deleted and incapable of recovery. It's incapable. It cannot be recovered because Jesus gave his blood at the end of the age. It's wiped the slate clean. Completely wiped the slate clean. Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin, which is why this verse, according to your identity in Christ, what God thinks about you, you're standing before God. This verse is so important to your spiritual life. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, There is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. If you have a relationship with God, you don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to the enemy kingdom. You belong to Christ, and who belongs to Christ? There is no condemnation. Why? There is no record. You have no record. Not even three weeks from now. You don't have a record. There's, There's nothing that's written against you you've been plucked out of the kingdom of darkness and put in the kingdom of his dear son think about this the wilderness was the domain of the enemy the little piece of property the tabernacle sat on where god's presence was that was eden that was his place that was his chosen place all around us is darkness but wherever you are is kingdom of light you're the kingdom that's why jesus said the kingdom is in you We will all face judgment when Christ returns, but for us, it's not rejection, but it's acceptance. Hebrews 9.27 again says, As each person is destined to die, once after that comes judgment. So Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. The nation of Israel, on the Day of Atonement, they had been fasting, they had to be praying. Why? They were eagerly waiting for the purification. 
And it is the person who's eagerly waiting for Christ, whose heart is calling out for God, who's aching for his return, whose one passion and one desire is the Lord Jesus. This is the one who's going to find salvation in the last day. And what will they find when they stand before God but a clean slate and a clean record? We stand before Jesus because he was our atonement. And sin will be atoned for. Even though we mess up today and we confess our sins to God. I know you go through this process the same as I do. You make a mistake. You do something wrong. You, you feel guilty. You pray and you say, Lord, please, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Do you know what Jesus says to you? And we get it that he forgives us. But you know what God says to you when you ask his forgiveness? He says, what sin? What sin? I have no record. I have no record. Psalm 103.12 says he's removed our sins as far as east is from the west. What sin? Your sin is no longer in the camp. Does that mean we're free to live unholy lives, live however we want and disregard trying to live for the Lord? No. Because a heart who loves Jesus won't live a life that hurts Jesus. A life that loves Jesus will not live a life that hurts Jesus. But what's it mean? It means that we can strive to live holy as he is holy without fear of rejection or judgment when we mess up. Why? He's already taken care of the problem. We don't live under his law, but his grace. And we're immersed in his love. 1 John 4.18 says, Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows we've not fully experienced his love. Like if you're, if you're afraid of what God thinks of you, maybe you just need to have an awakening to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to just give Jesus your heart fully and completely. And then you'll recognize the same thing that others will recognize. He loves you dearly, passionately. There's no condemnation. There's no fear. So many of us live under guilt and shame because we're far too aware of our own brokenness and we're not aware enough of his love for us. And when it comes to talking about the last days, we become afraid because we're not sure if we'll make it into heaven But beloved, if you've given Jesus your heart by repenting of your sins and turning to Christ, put faith in his sacrifice and his resurrection, you belong to him. And your redemption is secured forever. And every mistake you've ever made and will ever make is already taken care of. I just love that picture. What sin? You know, some of you believe that you're a bad person. Some people believe they're too bad to even come to church because they're a bad person. I'm not a good person. Some who believe that you're not good enough to be used by God. Some of you believe that because of the decisions you've made, you've made too much of a mess of your life for God to really love you. Some of you believe that you're too broken, too damaged. You might say, well, you don't know where I come from. 
You don't know my family, my past, my history. But what Jesus is saying to you today is what sin, what mistake. As the response music begins to play, beloved, I just feel this from the Lord. Jesus is saying to you, I don't condemn you. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. Come, and let us walk together in my eternal love, because we're in this together. You are my precious bride, and what God has put together, no one can separate. I want to close with this scripture, and we'll go into a time of prayer and response. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation. Romans 8.31 begins this. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us from God who has chosen for his own, no one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. So who then can condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Doesn't mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or we're persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death or anything else we could put there. Or if we're sick, or we have marital problems or, or, or we have anxiety or stress or depression or any of the things that we want to throw in there. Verse 36, it says, as the scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day, we're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, or demons, neither our fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, I say again to you, what sin? What sin? And what's holding you back from pressing into the Father's love? You don't have a reason to be timid or shy. He loves you passionately. He's rejoicing over you. As his beautiful one, even now, he delights in you. He loves spending time with you. He loves hearing your heart. He loves to bless you, to take care of you. And one day, He is coming for you. One day. You just have to hold on a little longer. One day. But until that day comes, don't let anyone condemn you. Because there is nothing to condemn. What sin bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this moment. Maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God. And that's you I've been speaking to today, the one who's just filled with regret and remorse. 
There's pain in your life. There's painful circumstances. You've made mistakes. You have regrets. Maybe you feel like the person who's not good enough, or maybe you're too bad for God to love. Beloved, Jesus gave his life for you so that you could experience everything he has for you. And right here in the quietness of this moment, all he asks from you is for you to give him your heart. That's all he wants. He wants your heart. You give him your heart, he'll take care of your life. And all you have to do in quietness of this moment is pray to the Lord. His forgiveness is ready to be given. Just ask him. The scripture says if we ask God's forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The blood Jesus offered at the end of the age will wipe your sin away. And you'll be a new person. All you have to do is ask him. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and I would just encourage you to pray this from your heart to the Father. Invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior today. Begin a relationship with God. And let His power and His love begin to transform your life. Just pray to say, Father, thank you for giving Jesus on the cross for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I've made some mistakes. I've had some failures. But I trust in Jesus. And I give him my heart today. Thank you, Lord, for your love. I declare Jesus my Savior. And I claim his new life with him today. In Jesus' name. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.